This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, for one more week, the author of Politico's Daily Brussels Playbook column. You're going to love this episode. I caught up with Tony Blair over coffee in a 25th floor room in his hotel in Brussels. It felt like the old Blair had revved up his political and rhetorical engines and was raring to go. We took a deep dive in and around the Brexit message he delivered in a speech at the European Policy Centre that there's only weeks left to stop what he sees as the Brexit calamity. To get there, it will take a lot of swallowed pride on the EU's part, some brave British MPs, and a plan for Europe-wide immigration control bridging the two. If Brexit and so-called Global Britain does go ahead, Blair sees an angrier, bigger Singapore with its low-tax, low-regulation economic model undercutting Europe on its doorstep and junking Britain's social model. The podcast panel this week is discussing how much European political debate is getting detached from reality, and whether it's a good, bad, or merely sad thing that governments are now having to consider free public transport as a way to get people out of their cars and put fresh air back in their lungs. And of course, our MEP of the Week section will have you chuckling. Now it's time to hear from the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair. First of all, thank you for joining us on Politico's EU Confidential podcast. It's a pleasure. Now, I've got to put some cards on the table. Uh, You wouldn't have any reason to know this, but my mother's family is from Adelaide, where you spent some time growing up, and my father's family is from Durham, where I think your family has connections going back generations. Well, we're practically related. Um. Not only that, not only that. The third leg of this is that I technically worked for you for four years at the British Cabinet Office, the last four years, and I um, ran out the door the same month you did in 2007. So... They're okay. my cards on the table. Okay, the well, those are all interesting connections and two great cities in the middle of it. Indeed. Uh, so let's talk about Brexit. That's obviously what brings you to Brussels. We're one year into the negotiations about how this should or should not occur, and there's virtually no progress. And one of the messages that you've been carrying recently is the need for Britons to have the chance of a second vote. How can you sell that idea or make it happen without it just seeming like a naked opportunity to stop Brexit, which is also something you'd like to do? Yeah, so the reason why people should have a final say on the final deal is because what is clear, but wasn't clear back in June 2016, is that there are many different versions of Brexit. There are at least two within the cabinet 
I mean, never mind the parliament. The Labour Party is now got a different position from the government on Brexit. And so when people say Brexit means Brexit, well, what form of Brexit? And, you know, how do you define the will of the people as this Brexit rather than that Brexit? And the reason, as you rightly say, there's been no progress uh, over the last year in this negotiation is that the British government can find no way round the central dilemma. You either stay close to Europe, in which case you're going to end up abiding by Europe's rules, in which case a lot of people who voted Leave will say, well, what's the point of leaving? Because I want out of those rules. Or alternatively, you're prepared to have a clean break from Europe, diverge from its rules, but in which case you're not going to have access to the single market. And that's going to require a long and difficult period of economic restructuring. Now, there is no escaping that dilemma. And the reason there's been no progress is that the British government keeps restating the dilemma rather than resolving it, which is why you get all these phrases about cake and eat it. And, you know, what I've found here in Brussels is that, you know, people a few months back thought, you know, this is the Brits, it's a smart, capable political system. They've obviously got some clever strategy up their sleeve. And now what they're saying is, I don't think you guys really understand what you're doing here because what you're asking us for, we can't give you. Yeah, I can confirm that is 100% the impression of most people here in the town where they really thought there was some other strategy and now they're just like, wow, how have we ended up here? Uh, so let's imagine there is a second vote. How would that have to be constructed for it to be meaningful? Because the polls have shifted a little bit back and forth since the referendum, but they're fairly stubborn. So is there a particular way that the question would have to be framed for it to avoid sending us back to this dead end that we're in at the moment? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think, first of all, it comes about if there's an impasse in Parliament. You see, I think there is no real majority in Parliament for any one of these forms of Brexit. Because as I say, one form of Brexit will lead people to say, well, what on earth's the point of leaving? We're still going to be abiding by a lot of European rules. Another form of Brexit will have people saying, well, this is actually going to be really painful economically, so perhaps that's not a good idea. So whatever form of Brexit you choose, I think it's hard to get a majority in Parliament. So I think the reason for the idea of having a, a final say on the final deal is because you reach an impasse in Parliament. And then, frankly, you could have an election or you could have a, 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 a vote on that on the deal that the government proposed. And, you know, yes, it's going to be complicated because... You know, in one sense, there are many different variations of this, but I'm afraid that just arises from the nature of the problem and we'll have to find a way through that. But what I think it would be, I think, foolish for the government in those circumstances to go back and have an election. And I think the Tory party will want to avoid that because otherwise they'll just repeat the mistake of last June. I think it's much more likely that what will happen in those circumstances is that they say, OK, well, we can't get it through Parliament. Let's put it back to the people. And actually... At some point, the Tories will realise this. This is really a smart thing for them to do because the whole reason they had this referendum in the first place was to heal the division in the Tory party. You know, I remember the 2015 election. I was the only person who made a speech on Europe in the whole of that election of any sort of substance. Europe wasn't an issue, right? It was mainly an issue by the referendum. They thought they'd cure their division. They haven't. Their division's still there in cabinet between the Boris Johnsons of the world and the Philip Hammonds of this world. And it's not going to be resolved. If we look at the turning points here, you know, we could go all the way back to the Daily Mail and the Rupert Murdoch papers really running a campaign for decades that was pretty anti-EU. Maybe you want to reflect a little bit on your decisions around immigration in 2004. And then David Cameron's decision on this referendum stands out as fairly silly, doesn't it? 
look, you can always go back and, you know, having taken a few difficult decisions myself, I'm sympathetic to those who are in a difficult political position. So I don't, I don't think there's any point in going back and casting blame. I think we just got to realize we are where we are. But I, <clears throat> I think what's very clear to me that if we want to get a reconsideration, there are, as I say, kind of three legs to the stool. One is to show British people this is much more costly and complex than we thought. Well, I think that's pretty obvious. The second thing, which I think is really important, is that you're not going to be able to change this Brexit decision unless you respond to the genuine underlying anxieties people have, particularly around issues like immigration. And that's where you need a, a new policy agenda, which is one of the things my institute works on. And the third thing is, is for Europe also to recognise this is bad for Europe, it's not just bad for Britain, and to be prepared to make some reforms itself. And that's, you know, also a tough ask, but I think in these circumstances it's possible. And the reason I'm making this speech in Brussels is to say to European leaders, look, we've all got to share responsibility for finding a way out of this, but don't be under any doubt. If you pull Britain out of Europe, Europe loses one of its biggest economies, it loses one of its big political powers, it loses a country with enormous ties to the transatlantic alliance, and you're going to be in a situation, whether we like it or whether you like it in the years to come, Britain will be a competitor to Europe and not an ally. And, you know, people can try and dress that up whatever way they want, but the British economy will be driven in the end, if we come out of the single market, the only basis upon which we're going to be able to attract investment, because we're sitting right on the doorstep of Europe, is actually to say, you know what, we're not Europe, we're not like them, we're different. And that's going to be very ugly. And what do you think the end game might be for the EU in this regard? Is it that the EU could actually unravel at some point? Or is it that intermediate stop that you've just described, that there's a kind of race to the bottom economically, where the two sides tear each other apart instead of working together? Well, I think it'll be a little more sort of prosaic than that. I mean, first of all, contrary to the perpetual fantasies of these Brexiteers, no other country is going to follow us down this path. If anything, what's happened is that other countries in Europe have solidified their support for staying in the European Union. Not changed their mind, by the way, on some of the underlying issues like immigration. There's still widespread concern. It's still upending politics right across the European Union. But people have watched what's happened in Britain. They're not going to emulate that. So the European Union will hold together. It's just that they'll be weaker. And Britain will also, you know, we'll come through it. I mean, if we do Brexit, I'm not, you're not going to be crazy about these things. Britain's still going to be a significant and important country. But the thing that really motivates me deeply is, you know, I'm seeing the world slightly different, obviously, when you stop being prime minister and you see a lot of what's happening around the world. And it's really interesting if you just look at the geopolitical change in big picture terms that's happening. If you go back to the year 2000, you know, the top 10 economies of the world were dominated by Europe. Okay, so, you know, Britain, Germany, France, Italy, so on. If you fast forward to today, already the economy of China is several times the size of the UK. Okay, but then you've got the economy of India coming up. You've got other emerging economies. You fast forward to 2030, things start to look a lot different. India's economy by then is bigger than Germany's. You fast forward to 2050, You've got three big dominant economies in the world, America, China, India. Now, in these circumstances, the rationale for the European Union is we're all medium-sized countries in those circumstances, and all of our economies are going to be many times smaller than those three behemoths. If you want to compete in that world and secure your values, secure your interests, you've got to band together. And that's the reason for the European Union today. It's not the same as in my father's generation, which was about peace, it's about power. And if we don't understand that, 
we're making an historic mistake. And you know, the idea that Britain's gonna go off and get these great trade deals with America and China, which are deals that the European Union with all its weight can't do, but we are gonna somehow manage to do. I mean, it's, it's a total fantasy. And so that is the decades long vision or opportunity um, you say in your speech today that we might only have weeks to turn this ship around, though, to avoid Brexit. And a key plank of your idea is there's got to be some immigration controls, Europe-wide immigration controls, that don't junk the idea of freedom of movement, but that really deliver on those concerns that drove the Brexit vote. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how you see that happening in practice? It's a combination of two things. And by the way, this is a very active debate in Europe. So the first thing is to strengthen Europe's external borders. I mean, the fact is they are, you know, countries are just kind of left on their own. If you're Italy or Greece and you're in the front line of big waves of migration, and by the way, you know, in time to come, I think there's real risks for Europe on migration from the countries of the Sahel particularly. You know, if you strengthen those external borders, you make it a much clearer, tougher, tighter system. That's one aspect. And the Europeans are discussing this now very actively. The second thing is on freedom of movement, where, you know, there's a combination of things you can do. I mean, the Europeans probably could cut a better deal with us than the one they offered David Cameron. And when people say, well, why should they do it now? And the answer is because we're now all looking over the precipice at Brexit. But secondly, one of the things that, frankly, even I didn't really, you know, understand fully, is that if you look at how different countries in Europe deal with the existing freedom of movement rules in Europe, if you take, for example, the way the French deal with them or the Belgians deal with them, they just apply these rules in a much tougher way. I mean, in Belgium, you're given two months to find a job, and if you're not, you're back, you're out. Um, so, you know, there's lots of things we could be doing. We could support Macron's idea of, of this, what's called the Posted Workers Directive, which would prevent countries having their wages undercut by flows of migration, and they could take action to stop that. So there are massive things we could do to deal with the problems that the British people genuinely felt about European migration. I personally think that ultimately people's concerns about migration are actually about migration from outside the EU. But nonetheless, if you wanted to deal with those, you could deal with them within the existing system. So what I'm saying is really over the coming weeks and months, you know, we just need to open this debate up because I think it will become increasingly clear that what the government wants to negotiate is simply not negotiable. And therefore, your choice is stark. You're either clean break from Europe and big damage or staying inside Europe's market, in which case you're just a rule taker and not a rule maker. And so I think this Brexit debate within the UK will evolve quite quickly. And we just need to make sure that the Europeans are tracking that and open to accommodating it. Mm -hmm. And if we think of the Northern Irish issue, which is a bit more short term or immediate in some of the negotiations as they're unfolding now, um, how personal is that for you? It makes me very angry. I think it's totally irresponsible. I mean, people of my generation remember what it was like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, when every day the news would, or for days on end, the news would be dominated by terrorism and division and disunity and um, you know, terrible things happening in, as a result of the troubles in Ireland and thousands of people lost their lives. And you know, today's generation kind of doesn't, it's just not an issue. I mean, to make it an issue again would be profoundly irresponsible. When people say, you know, we're using this Northern Ireland issue, John Major and I went to Northern Ireland in the course of the referendum and we exactly said we would be in the position we're in today. Because obviously both of us, having been Prime Minister, we'd studied it and knew 
that if you end up for the first time in having the Republic of Ireland in a different relationship to the UK, to Europe, then we were going to have this problem. And, you know, when the Boris Johnson of this world say the things they do, I mean, it's just, it's so irresponsible because the reason we've got this difficulty is because they were completely dismissive of the problems they were creating by taking the UK out of Europe's single market whilst leaving the Republic of Ireland in it. And, you know, we haven't created that problem. They've created that problem. Interesting that you mentioned John Major, because I think it was very noticeable to a, a lot of us who follow this issue. Um, he spoke yesterday, you're speaking today, Theresa May speaks uh, tomorrow. Um, so I wonder how much of that is coincidence and how much of that is coordination? And also, do you ever get the feeling, or are you just ever rolling your eyes, where you're like, how am I the leading voice for <laughs> Remain? Like, you left the party business, you've gone into the arguments and the ideas business. It's a bit strange that you're the leading voice for Remain these days, isn't it? Um, yes, but, you know, I, I think, and, and, you know, John Major and I didn't actually coordinate what we were doing this week. It just happened that way. But, but I think his speech is a brilliant speech, by the way, and really well worth reading. Yeah, but, you know, it, 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 it depends... It depends how serious you think this is for the country. And I'm, you know, very motivated by the fact that I can see a situation we go through with this Brexit where, you know, a younger generation of people in a few years' time are saying, you know, what were you guys doing landing us with this mess? Because it will mean very difficult choices for the country. This is what the Brexit people aren't spelling out for you. If you want a future outside of Europe, the only future that really works economically, if you're right on the doorstep of Europe, and you're joined physically by the Channel Tunnel, and you're going to pull yourself out of the single market for trade with all these other countries, your economic future can only be that you market yourself as not Europe. What does that mean? It means low taxes, light regulation, you become an offshore trading hub, you attract an investment basically by pointing the finger at Europe and saying we're not like them. Okay, that's the future. And that has massive implications for your welfare system, for your pension system, for your healthcare system, for how you run government, for tax, for spending. And, you know, frankly, no one in British politics at the moment in the mainstream parties is really spelling that out for people. And, you know, the Labour Party's got itself into a position where, okay, it's moving. But, you know, in my view, the Labour Party itself should be saying to people, look, we understand your anxieties. Here's a way of dealing with them, but Brexit's not the answer. I think there was a lot of disappointment <coughs> in the reactions to Corbyn as well, where we sat for a year waiting for him to really to come out with a, a clear Brexit position. And then to a lot of people, it just sounded like he was cherry-picking in a slightly different way to Theresa May when he came out with that position of the bespoke customs union. So the way I look at it is, is that the Labour Party position is it's pulled up its anchor and it's left the kind of what looks like a safe port but actually isn't of being in the same position as the government right but they'd be very unwise to drop anchor at the customs union because the truth is that doesn't really resolve your problems by the way it doesn't really resolve your problems in northern ireland either so i look at the labor party position as on the path of an evolution and i think the labor party at some point i think is capable of articulating and expressing the dilemma, capital D, and coming to the point of saying, if in fact, the only way of protecting jobs is to stay in the single market, then frankly, we might as well stay in the European Union. Now, that is the; those are the steps of evolution. I think what would be a mistake for the Labour Party, 
<clears throat> as I say, to drop anchor here on the customs union because it doesn't solve all your problems. It's better than being where we were, but what they'll find is they're going to be attacked by the Tories now selling out Brexit without actually getting to the truly safe harbour, which is to turn the fire on the whole Tory strategy towards Brexit. Now, to think about the EU reform <coughs> point that you're pushing here today in Brussels, um, sort of a little bit beyond immigration, is there anything that you can think back of, back onto from your time as a leader at the European Council where you just thought this place needs to be shaken up. So beyond getting a grip on immigration, you know, what else does the EU need to do to really uh, protect itself or be more viable in the long term? Yeah, so again, it's a very good question. I mean, look, in 2005, I made a speech to the European Parliament, which set out what but I Brits think got is... got standing ovations. It did happen <laughs> once upon a time. Yeah, but the message was a very tough message, actually, about reform. And I said then, the problem with Europe is that every time it wants to reform, it sees this in terms of institutional power grabs. Okay, the actual reforms that you need should be directed towards, for example, today, things like digitalization. Okay, why haven't we got a European Google, right? Or a European Amazon? That's what we should be thinking of. Now, to be fair, there are a lot of people in Europe are thinking about that. Macron's thinking about that now. Why don't we have a common energy policy in Europe? You'd reduce costs dramatically. How are you going to make the most of the links in European education to build a, an education future for our young people that really allows them to become, you know, much more marketable as students in the modern world, right? And an export industry. I mean, that's a, what I learned from Australia is that it's a huge students in, that's an export no, industry. No, absolutely. And, and, and you know, for, for Britain today, education is a very important part of our economy. Now, how do we develop that, those links within Europe? And then on things like defence. I mean, if, as I think is possible we get major eruptions in these Sahel countries which is a group of countries in the northern part of Africa with you know poor governance poverty radicalization exploding populations you know who's going to have to deal with that it's going to be a European problem but we'll have to call upon the United States to deal with it in the end you know we should be building the capability of dealing with those problems within Europe so I think there's a whole agenda that's there for the European Union which we should think about in the context of a world in which you're going to have a dominant power in the West, America, and a dominant power in the East, China, and in time, India. And how do we make sure, therefore, that all of us as European countries are able to, you know, negotiate with these people from a position of strength and are strong enough together that they can't pick us off one by one, which is what they'll do, by the way, if they, because that's what big powers do. So, you know, this is, for me, this is also about looking ahead 20, 30 years and seeing how the world's changing and how we find our place within it. And is there any role for, uh, I guess, institutional reform, closing the democratic deficit? And I want to circle back to what we think of as a personal experience for you back when the new European Treaty was being finalised in 2009. They were creating this role of council president where Donald Tusk is now holding mm-hmm. it. And you can probably guess I'm going to mention that some people talked about you holding that role. How close were you to getting that role? And was it that some leaders just didn't want the threat of a global figure potentially lecturing them or kicking their butts? <laughs> and that, that's one of the reasons why you didn't get across that finish line there. And does a change like creating this spits and candidate process where you kind of put forward a lead candidate in the elections and that somehow plays into who is chosen as the European Commission president... Does that have any meaning, do you think, in the eyes of voters? Can that really close that democratic deficit? 
Yeah, it's it's. This is very difficult. I mean, look, for, from my own perspective, I would have done it if I'd been asked to. I wasn't, and there were lots of different reasons for that. But I think you know, I have suggested myself you may get to the point where you've a directly elected president of Europe. I mean, Europe's not ready for that at the moment. And I think it's you know, we're still very much in European terms with a compromise between cooperation between nation states and then the the European wide institutions like the European Parliament and the problem look the problem always been with the European Parliament is that you know most people don't feel really close to their European Parliament it's members. a Bush League Parliament isn't it <laughs> well I wouldn't <laughs> I'm in Brussels so I'm <laughs> going to be careful of describing it as that but the fact is it's not it's not recognized by people in the same way as their own national parliaments. So this is something Europe's going to have to try and work out over the years. Now it's time for the fun part. A few rapid fire questions, if, right. you, if you dare. Um, I probably don't. But but yeah. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Um, and the idea is just I give you a quick question and you give me a quick answer. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to know who is your favorite EU leader from your time as prime minister? It's a very bad question to answer because you make one friend and many enemies. Did you make one friend, though? <laughs> I have many friends. <laughs> I have a few enemies, too. Okay, I'll give you a free pass on that one. What was your worst EU summit moment? My worst moment was, uh, I think, in the year 2000, when we were going all the way through the night, and literally everybody was completely fed up with what was happening. And I remember at some point, Jacques Chirac, who was actually chairing the meeting, got so irritated with the proceedings that he pushed his chair back put his feet on the table and got out, out a book on Japanese art and began reading it which <laughs> <laughs> summed up the state of things and was so, everyone actually awake for that moment or were well, some people we were in, we were in various time? degrees of, of slumber by then but yeah no, I, I, that was a particularly difficult moment some of those European meetings were really tough by the way but that's hey, that's the way it is. Oh, you're, you're still sitting here, so you survived. Um, dead or alive, tell me a European hero, political hero of yours. I think the founding fathers, actually, people like Schumann, were were amazing people, because they, you know, they had the vision and the determination, not just to think about how Europe could be different, but to translate it into a practical endeavour. And you know, I think that's an amazing thing. Now, you don't look like you're slowing down, but can you ever imagine retiring from public life? Nope. That would be a bad mistake. Because it's just, you know, it, it, look, I'm still very motivated. What we're doing with the institute we've created, which is, you know, quite a large, you know, we've got roughly 250 people in, in the institute as a whole. We work in Africa, we work in the Middle East, and we're working now on this new policy agenda, which is about how does the centre ground, again, become the place of making change, and not, you know, just become the guardian of the status quo? Because I think this populism is deriving from very um, clear roots of public dissatisfaction. And you've got to find the answers, because if you don't, then other people are going to ride the anger. One last question. What do you do or who do you turn to to keep grounded? Um, it used to be my children and now I've got two grandchildren. So I'm very, this is, a, you know, being a grandparent is the one thing that I've come across in life that is greatly hyped and lives up to its hype so you get to be the good guy yeah and also you can give them back so this <laughs> this is very good <laughs> you get all the good bits and all of the difficult bits of parenthood so this has been a, a great joy and also you know it, it, it keeps it like I keep grounded because I'm constantly curious as well I mean I think it's a fascinating world out there 
you know, I'm studying a lot now about the next generation of technological change, for example, artificial intelligence, all of these things. And I find the world uh, endlessly fascinating. And it's, it's humbling because there's so much you don't know and so much, so much you've got to learn. And that's a, that experience in itself keeps you with a certain grounded mentality. Well, thank you for sharing some of what you do know on EU Confidential. Thank you. You were listening to Tony Blair, former British Prime Minister and now head of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. And now it's time to welcome back the podcast panel. Hey, Alva Finn. Hey, Lena Aberus. Morning. Hi, Ryan. Welcome back, Ryan. Thank you. It is freezing this morning here in Brussels. Minus seven. That's warmer than Greenland. I don't think that is how our weather systems are supposed to operate. How were you ladies feeling on your way in? I was on my bike, and if you're in the wind, yeah, almost my eyeballs felt like they were freezing. It was very scary. But yeah, I read the other day that it's actually colder in Europe at the moment uh, than it is in the Arctic, which is a terrifying proposition. Yes, my ears definitely agreed with you on the way in this morning. Let's get into some EU WTF moments. I wanted to start first with the food bank in Essen in Germany. They say they won't serve people without German passports. So not even a question of are you temporarily or permanently in Germany. Like You need the actual passport if you're going to receive charity from this organization. And that, that struck me as quite amazing. I wouldn't call it a charity. No, they they just lost their their cause and their their the meaning yeah. of their existence. Now they're a club, aren't uh, they? This is this is absolutely ridiculous, and it's so such an embarrassment for for a European country and for Europe coming, especially from Germany. I mean, it, it is really upsetting, and if we are going to really uh, start treating each other according to which nationality, we might as well call Europe another name, you know. I think there's kind of, there's lots of things, I think, around the refugee crisis, etc., that have shown that solidarity for some Europeans means solidarity for white people. Uh, and I do think it, it kind of shows that some of our basest in- instincts are really not very healthy and are, ex- are exclusionary. And I think this is just another example. And I think some German people are, are saying, you know, we've had enough now it's Germany for Germans, and that's really sad to see because the whole of Europe is basically built on on migration to and from different places. It's one step beyond even sometimes. I mean, if you think back to the Greek crisis in that situation, it wasn't just uh, white people. Mm. It was white people like us because they were clearly saying Greeks don't count as people like us. Um, and there's you know legitimate arguments about how Greece uh, did or didn't handle its membership of things like uh, the Eurozone. But it was it was the same mentality coming in. A lack of compassion, I think, and a lack of solidarity, it's true. A lack of humanity, absolutely. Uh, now, let's focus on some positives, some EU thumbs up. Yeah. I believe that one of the panel would like to nominate a public transport initiative here in Brussels. Yeah, so, I mean, in one way, it's a, it's a thumbs down because we have so much pollution in, in Brussels that we need this initiative. Basically, they have proposed that once the pollution goes above a certain level that's not good for public health, they will try to dissuade people from taking their cars by making all public transport free for the 24 hours after the pollution has gone up. They have an app that you can check uh, the pollution on now, and we know that they've been 
a little bit uh, hiding levels of pollution sometimes in the city of Brussels. And also all the velos, which are, are a public bike system here, will also be free. So I said, I, I mean, we are coming to a time when everybody will be experiencing pollution in the cities that we live in in Europe. So I thought it just was a good initiative and it's going to be rolled out in other places as well. Is that a thumbs up, Lena? As long as we don't have any more strikes, please, Brussels. I mean, it was a strike <laughs> yesterday, wasn't it? It's a little bit unfair to the people, and I include myself in this category, who actually subscribe to public transport in the first place. So we don't get a free day, even though we were doing the right thing and not polluting our cities in the first place. Yeah. So I don't see why uh, it shouldn't be free all year round. If the problem, if the problem is that our cities are too polluted, then the real solution is give the incentives and the subsidies to the things that are not polluting mm -hmm. or get rid of the things that are doing the polluting which is not dissuade people to use those cars mm -hmm. just don't allow them to happen imagine the the auto sector will really allow this that people stop using cars yeah, i didn't say it was realistic <laughs> i just said it was my view yeah <laughs> and also we have to remember that um one of the things the perks that you get with jobs here in belgium although it's sometimes difficult to get a, a, a company phone is a company car and that I think is something that really needs yeah. to go away and would stop. A tax break for the companies and a tax break for the workers. Yeah, really and then you amazing. get a car even though you might not need one. So mm -hmm. that's something that needs to go. This with two bicycles. But difficult with Company the car lobby. <laughs> well, I'm going to throw up a really controversial one here now, an honorary EU thumbs up. And that is actually got nothing to do with Europe at all, but around the moves of some financial companies and other companies who had financial relationships with the NRA, the gun lobby in the United States, using their financial muscle to say, actually, we're not going to have those relationships anymore. And I think that is a, a positive use of market power for what is clearly a big social problem in the US. And it really shows, it's kind of like a marker, a litmus test of public opinion as well. It must be swaying in the wrong direction for the NRA for that to have happened because it had it held such a position of power for so long. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of way, different ways to see it, but one of them is public opinion is changing in the US. It's, it's absolutely a, a triple, double honorary uh, thumbs up and... Uh, it's, it's about time that they truly do something. Maybe there is a broader them. lesson for Europe or anywhere in the world, really, which is that even a position or an organization or person who seems impregnable, that, you know, they're just rock solid in the power that they have and they just it just seems like you can't do anything about it. Actually, everyone at some point can lose their power. Mm -hmm. Fall yeah. from grace, everybody can do it. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, speaking of falls from grace, it's time to focus on the European Parliament again. <laughs> It's time for MEP of the Week. Da -da -da -da, I'm and going first. Okay. <laughs> you go first. Okay. Um, so Brigitte Colin Langen, who is a German social uh, from the EPP, um, and she's from the SDU. The CDU? Sorry, CDU. <laughs> I'm dyslexic readers. I, I, re I read badly. Uh, the listeners, actually, it's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Bad reader. <laughs> I got Barbara Capel the Europe, from the Europe of Nations and Freedom Group. She is from the Freedom Party in Austria. I can say, safely say I know, Aust uh, <laughs> I know Barbara's <laughs> party, but I got no idea who she is. I have heard of um, um, Birgit. Uh, Birgit, Birgit, yeah. Birgit. Forgot her name, but I definitely heard of her. <laughs> okay. Uh, Werner Kuhn. 
mm-hmm. um, from the uh, group of European People's Party, and he's from Germany. And unfortunately, Mr. Kuhn, I don't know anything about you. I don't know Ryan or Alva. I have Paolo De Castro, a socialist from the Italian Party Democratic. No. And I have um, Danta Maria Ubner from the PP from Poland. And no, I don't it's, know. It's Danuta Hubner. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know her? Yes. She's one of the Brexit people. She's, um, uh, she's her committee's Brexit representative, and she's a former commissioner from Poland. Oh. Okay. Ah, yes. Very good. Sorry, I remember her now, too. I don't know her. Okay. Two, two out of three is not bad. Okay. Danuta Hubner. Step on up. You are our MEP of the week. Yay! Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thank you so much for joining. Please get on to whatever platform you found this podcast and rate, review, or subscribe to the podcast so we can grow the community, tell people what it's about, and improve if you think there's something we can do better. Thanks, as always, to the team that makes this possible. Michelle Stoddart, Andrew Gray, Wei Dong Lin, and Antonio Fernandez.